Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 247. We'll conclude the book of 2 Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 32 through 36 and follow with some thoughts about canons and concluding nine and a half years of TanakhCast. We're into the fourth and final chapter of Chizkiyahu's reign, and it's the most action-packed. The Assyrians are on the move, and Chizkiyahu is preparing the capital for the assault. He orders the sealing of all natural springs outside the walls to deny the invaders ready water to drink. He has the walls and towers reinforced. He arms the city's defenders. He also prepares the people for the siege mentally, quote, be strong and stalwart. Do not be afraid and do not be terrified by the king of Assyria and by the great throng that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. He has great power of flesh, but Adonai, our God, is with us to aid us and to fight our battle. The psychological warfare begins almost immediately. Servants of Sancheriv arrive at the city walls and begin to smack talk the king. Quote, Let not Hezekiah delude you. And let him not entice you in this fashion, and do not put faith in him, for no god, no nation, or kingdom was able to save its people from my hand and from the hand of my fathers. How much more so your gods will not save you from my hand. And they called out in a loud voice in Judahite to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them and panic them so that they might capture the city. And they spoke about the God of Jerusalem as about the gods of the peoples of the land, the work of human hands. Well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? We're some real pretty shit now, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Well, King Chizkiyahu and the prophet Yeshayahu respond with prayers, and God sends an angel who smites the Assyrians and sends them packing. <laughs> the chronicler then switches gears to focus on Chizkiyahu, the man, who comes down with a fatal illness because of his pride, but humility and prayers save the man again. Quote, and Hezekiah had very great wealth and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver and for gold and for precious stones and for spices and for shields and for lovely vessels and storehouses for the yield of grain and wine and oil and stables for every kind of beast and for the flocks, pens and towns he did provide for himself and herds of sheep and cattle in abundance, for God gave him very abundant possessions." And since we're on the topic of abundance, Chizkiyahu also stops up the abundant spring of Gihon and redirects it into a tunnel into the city, which would serve him and the people of Jerusalem against the oncoming threat, which the chronicler introduces in the next verse. Quote, and so in the affair of the spokesmen of the Babylonian commanders who sent to him to inquire about the sign that was in the land when God abandoned him to test him to know what was in his heart. Whew. And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his loyal deeds, they are written in the vision of the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And then Chizkiyahu dies, and his son Menashe takes over. Chapter 33 marks the beginning of Menashe's reign, where he completely undoes all the good works of his father. Quote, and Menashe led Judah and the dwellers of Jerusalem astray to do what was evil more than the nations that Adonai had destroyed before the Israelites. And Adonai spoke to Menashe and to his people, but they did not listen. 
I think you can guess what happens next. Quote, And Adonai brought against them and the army commanders of the king of Assyria, and they captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him in fetters and led him off to Babylonia. Which gives him some time to pray and think, and of course, God forgives. And so Manasseh returns to Jerusalem and undoes all the undoing he did of his father's good works and reinforces the original message of worshipping God properly. And then... The chronicler lays Menashe down with his fathers, and Ammon, his son, inherits the crown, and proceeds to undo his father's undoing of his earlier undoing of his grandfather's good work, which gets him... Murdered, in a plot, and quote, the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his stead. Chapter 34 recounts how the young Yoshia assumes the throne at age eight, and almost immediately, quote, he began to seek out the God of David, his father. And in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the cultic poles and the idols and the molten images. 18 years into his reign, Yoshiahu has even grander designs for his religious reform. He commissions a total overhaul of the temple, from staffing to the actual physical structure itself. And in the process, quote, Chilkiah the priest found a book of the teaching of Adonai by Moses. And Chilkiah spoke out and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found a book of teaching in the house of Adonai. And Chilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and Shaphan brought the book to the king. At which point... Yoshiahu rends his garments and sends the text for authentication with Huldah, the prophetess, who also warns that bad things happen when you do that. But not to worry, they won't happen in Yoshiahu's time because he's a righteous king. And in that vein, Yoshiah summons the people to Jerusalem, quote, and all the people from the greatest to the least with him, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of Adonai. And the king stood on his platform and sealed the covenant before Adonai to walk after Adonai and to keep his commands and his precepts and his statutes with all his heart and with all his being to do the words of the covenant written in this book. And in a callback to the previous episode, Yoshia does a big blowout for Passover down to the last detail, quote, and the service was firmly set and the priests stood at the station and the Levites according to their orders by the king's command. And they slaughtered the paschal sacrifices and the priests cast the blood while the Levites did the flaying. And they removed the burnt offerings to give it to the people according to the people's divisions of patriarchal houses to offer to Adonai as it is written in the book of Moses. And the same for the cattle. And they roasted the paschal sacrifice over fire according to the regulation. And they consecrated gifts. They cooked in pots and cauldrons and pans and rushed them to all the people. And just as quickly as the pots, cauldrons, and pans were rushed to the people, the reviews from the people came back. My rating is five stars out of five. Magnificent. Quote, and no Passover like it had been done in Israel from the days of Samuel the prophet. And all the kings of Israel had not done like the Passover that Josiah and the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel present and the dwellers of Jerusalem did. But Yoshia couldn't end on a high note. He had to stick his nose where he had no business. No, it wasn't offering incense on the altar like his great, 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 great grandfather Uziah. It was taking on the Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish. Pharaoh himself is puzzled at the intervention. Quote, what do I have to do with you, king of Judah? It is not against you today, but against the house at war with me. And a god has said to me to hurry. Desist from the god that is with me, lest he destroy you. But Yoshia persists and takes a number of arrows to the chest and succumbs to his wounds. The king is dead. 
Long live his heir. The nation mourns, quote, and Jeremiah wrote a lament for Josiah, and all the male and female singers recited it in their lamentations, and they are written in lamentations. And the rest of the acts of Josiah and his deeds of loyalty, as it is written in the teachings of Adonai, and his acts early and late, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Jehoahaz is crowned king in the beginning of chapter 36, the concluding chapter of both 2 Chronicles and the Tanakh. There's a lot of ground to cover here as things wrap up, so buckle up. Jehoahaz is 23 when he takes the throne, but within three months, he is deposed by the Egyptians who install Jehoiakim in his place. Jehoiakim, quote, did what was evil in the eyes of Adonai, his god, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylonia, came up against him and bound him in fetters to bring him to Babylonia. The Babylonians loot Jerusalem and install Jehoiachin in Jehoiakim's stead, but he too doesn't sit long on the throne before he too does evil in the eyes of Adonai and is spirited away in chains to Babylonia. Tzidkiyahu is installed. Hopefully this time he'll be better, but... He's not. Quote, and he did what was evil in the eyes of Adonai, his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from Adonai. And also against King Nebuchadnezzar, he rebelled and he was too stiff-necked and too hard-hearted to turn back to Adonai, God of Israel. And with that, Jerusalem is sacked, the temple is burned, and Judah falls to the king of the Chaldeans, who, quote, exiled the survivors of the sword to Babylonia, and they became slaves to him and to his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of Adonai through Jeremiah. Until the land expiates its Sabbath years, all days of the desolation that kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. We're flying through the decades. As the chronicler recounts in the next verse that, quote, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, as the word of Adonai through Jeremiah was completed, Adonai roused the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he sent round an oral proclamation through all his kingdom. And also a writing saying, quote, Thus said Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth has Adonai, God of the heavens, given me. And he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever be among you of all his people, may Adonai, his God, be with him and let him go up. And with that, the chapter ends. And the Tanakh concludes with a note of hopefulness for a better future in the ancestral homeland. Tanakhcast first episode dropped on April 4th, 2013, with an introduction to this project, the relevant texts and terminology, the weirdness, which is the Tanakh as an anthology, and how long it would take to complete. About five years or so. Um, That's not how that math works. I was wildly off. So here we are, nine and a half years later, barreling to an ending of a weird anthology where the chronicler rushes through the reign of three kings during which very big geopolitical events unfold with nary a mention to get to the payoff, which is the sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, only to rush through that and the decades of exile in Babylonia before getting to Kurash the Great and his proclamation inviting the Jews to go up. Talk about ending on a high note. But I want to slow down a little and unpack what I would argue was the most vital and pivotal experience the Jews experienced in their history up to that point, an experience that continues to define the Jewish people to this very day, living in the diaspora. Diaspora, I should say, is a prettier, softer term. What various voices in the Tanakh would employ is the word exile, which connotes punishment and suffering. I did a deep dive into this concept of exile as punishment in episode 88. 
In episode 240, I spoke about the Jewish experience in Babylon at great length, with an emphasis on one of the innovations of the Babylonian Jewish community, what we today would call the synagogue. Here, I'd like to focus on the other innovation, the redaction of the Torah into a single scroll. In episode 229, I talked about how in the time of Nehemiah, which is decades after the end of Second Chronicles, the Torah scroll was read aloud publicly with a mevin to offer a simultaneous translation and elaboration in Aramaic, which was the lingua franca of the Jewish people at that time. Having a unitary Torah provided the foundation for the eventual canonizing of the Tanakh itself, a process that, as I discussed in episode 153, was not settled even centuries after the advent of the Common Era. But let's take a moment to talk about the process of having five distinct scrolls and then combining them into one single Torah. Even talking about this as a thing tends to scandalize people. What? To the best of our scholarly understanding, between the 8th and 4th centuries BCE, redactors were busily engaged with creating the thing we know as the Torah. A redactor is someone who prepares a text for publication. I guess you could say it's a fancy word for editor. Anyway, though we do not know who these redactors were, they were surely influenced by, or perhaps members of, the Sofrim, an emergent class in Babylonian Jewish society, teachers, scribes, whose primary role was interpreting Jewish texts and law for their community. Ezra was their most famous Babylonian-born practitioner. He even referred to himself in his eponymous book as, quote, a ready sofer in the law of Moses. Present-day Orthodox Judaism in all its various shades of black categorically reject the premise or even the faint possibility that the Torah was redacted. Nevertheless, rabbinic tradition, of which they claim to be the direct descendants and preservers, retains evidence of active redacting and Ezra's direct role in reproducing a Torah canon. The best example comes from, ironically, a text that was excluded from the Mishnah. This text, known as a Baraita, was quoted in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Menachot, Folio, page 30a, and it poses a rather innocent question. Is it possible that Moshe was alive and wrote, quote, so Moses died? This question in itself challenges the popular account of Moshe writing the whole Torah atop Mount Sinai, as it would have been quite easy for Moshe taking God's dictation to simply record the future events as described in the present. However, the text concludes, Moshe wrote the whole Torah until that verse, and then Yehoshua, his successor, wrote the rest. Rabbi Yochanan, a 3rd century sage, stated outright that the Torah was given in separate scrolls. <laughs> His contemporary, a former gladiator turned scholar, Reish Lakish, disagreed, and though the single scroll assertion was accepted as correct, Rabbi Yochanan was neither condemned nor ostracized for his contrary position. And though Reish Lakish was an advocate of the single scroll Torah, he describes elsewhere how the sages dealt with variations in the Torah texts. The most curious of the three examples he cites involved a Torah scroll that had the word for she represented 11 times by the masculine form who. But in two other scrolls, the sages found the word for she represented 11 times by the word he. That's Hebrew for she. The sages resolved the matter by discarding the latter two feminine scrolls and validating the surviving 
masculine scrolls as authoritative. I think it's typical. Avot de Rabbi Natan, a companion volume to Pirkei Avot, recounts that Ezra produced an authoritative Torah scroll, but found ten instances where he was uncertain how to parse the text. Having made a series of educated editorial decisions, he marked these passages with special punctuation. These eser nikudot, or ten dots, would be removed once Eliyahu the prophet, the Messiah's harbinger, would return and along with other eschatological events, would settle the matter. I don't believe it. The act of establishing a canon says a lot about the politics of the canonizers, the community they represented, as well as the text they produced. Determining a canon means you have the men within the community who have the power and influence to make editorial decisions. Moreover, their editorial decisions are not only accepted by their community, but considered binding on all communities. Thus, with each cut and edit, canonizers not only provide a coherent text for popular consumption, they further entrench their position of influence through a text that advocates and perpetuates their ultimate authority. In the case of the Torah, the canonizers established its scope, deciding which texts and which versions of texts would be included in the finished product. What's more important, the Jewish people then accepted their product as Torah from Sinai without question or challenge. Even though, as mentioned before, rabbinic tradition incorporates evidence of active redaction and canonizing, the popularly accepted account of the Torah's creation has God as sole author, with Moshe as purveyor of the single closed scroll given to the Jews who are waiting below to fulfill and heed its commandments. Having closed the scroll, the canonizers then became interpreters, framing the manner in which the text was to be analyzed and understood, and in doing this, not only did they directly influence the direction of the community and individual behavior in the present, but they also established precedent, which guided future generations as well. Thus, with the Torah becoming the authoritative text of the Jewish people and the sole guide to proper Jewish living, be it in the land of Israel or wherever the whim of conquerors would take them. These canonizers slash interpreters in the form of Sofrim and later rabbis became essential, uncontested, and revered leaders of the Jewish community. Until the present day. Today, for a supermajority of Jews, we have a different take on Jewish life, observance, and authority. We don't have to rely so heavily on a sofer or a rabbi to interpret the text for us. Some don't have a relationship to our foundational texts at all and live happy Jewish lives until someone brings up Israel-Palestine and then everyone just goes nuts. Others have taken advantage of the many resources brought to us through our web browsers and podcatchers. But unlike our ancestors who were faced with a simple choice of fulfill and heed or not, we have a different challenge to contend with. Many of us would like to fulfill, but we're not sure how exactly, and for every voice that says do it this way, there's three that say differently. In other words, we're awash with information. How do we know which is reliable and which is good? This is not just a problem in the Jewish learning space. You're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. 
So with this sentiment, I tell you, my partners in learning, what Kurash the Persian told the exiled Jews. Go up. Take the tools you have at your disposal, safaria.org, the countless podcasts and TikToks about the Mishnah, Talmud, responsa literature, philosophy, and history. It's all here for you to consume at your pace, and most of it is free. All you need is the desire to learn and to question, which, if you've been learning along with me since 2013, you have in plenty. So thank you for listening. I hope you got something out of this bi-weekly exploration. There's a tradition that when someone completes a tractate of Talmud, they recite a short hadran, which literally means we will return. The hadran goes as follows. Hadran alach masechet, hadrach alan. Da'atan alach masechet, v'da'atach alan. Lo nitnishe minach masechet, v'lo titnishe minan. Lo be'alma hadin, v'lo be'alma da'ate. So as I conclude the nine-and-a-half-year run of Tanakhcast, I say, quote, We will return to you, and you will return to us. Our mind is on you, and your mind is on us. We will not forget you, and you will not forget us. Not in this world, and not in the world to come. Thank you for joining us for some Tanakh learning over the past nine-and-a-half years. Every episode of Tanakhcast, from Genesis 1 to 2 Chronicles 36, will remain online as a resource to you, as long as there is an online. If at any time you learned something over the past almost decade, tell your friends about your experience with Tanakhcast, text a work acquaintance, email your parents, and if you have a spare moment, please leave a review on this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning find us. If you want to say thanks in a different way, you can still support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or a monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to keep listening and learning. Thanks again and goodbye.